today we are wrapping up our sermon series, Like a Child. We've been do, traversing a certain scripture from Matthew's gospel over the last, this is the sixth week of that. And we're going to tie it up with a bow today with a very special speaker. I thought it would be only appropriate to have our, our children's and family ministries director um, share the last message in this series with you. So, um, so you're in for a treat today. So I want to welcome Olivia up here. If you would give her a, a welcome round of applause here. You, many of you know her, and she's going to share God's word with us today. Good morning. Thank you. That applause is too much. That applause was, but it was lovely. I liked it. Um, yeah, thank you. I'm the family ministries director here, so I get to hang out with the kids and the youth most of the time and the grown-ups with kids. So, um, yeah, I'm Olivia for those of you um, that don't know me. And um, Pastor Chris has been doing a great job with this childlike series. I'm a big fan because I think childlike faith is uh, one of the gifts of having like a multi-generational community. We have kids experiencing faith right in front of us, and so it's a good reminder. So um, I wanted to wrap it up today um, with, a, with a parable, so a little bit of a spoiler. But I want to start with a question of, did you ever run away from home as a kid? Now, I hope that everyone in this room, if they did, it was in the healthy, ha-ha-ha, little kid running away from home way and not in a more serious way. But um, yeah, it's a common thing that kids like pack their suitcase up and they like run to the driveway or grandma's and then they, uh, they come home when they're hungry. Um, so I ran away from home one time, and one of the things about being working with children is that you constantly have to think about yourself as a child, which means I keep photos like this very just, I mean, my mom would want me to let you know that I 100% picked that outfit, even though she probably wanted to cutify it a little bit. But that's me as a kid. That's about the age I ran away. That's me on my first day of kindergarten. Um, but uh, I really don't remember why um, I ran away from home, but I remember one very distinctive, like, flashball memory. So I remember, I, I mean, loosely from hearing the stories over and over again, I remember that, like, I packed a suitcase with the essentials, I'm sure, and I didn't, I got to the driveway. We lived in a cul-de-sac, so I think I did, like, a lap of the cul-de-sac. Then I walked home, and my mom opened the door, and, and I came in, and I'm sure we talked, and I'm sure we hugged, and I'm sure it was great. Um, but the thing I remember, like, vividly, because it's just deeply embarrassing, is my mom said, Olivia, What's, what's going on, you know, what, what's up? And I very dramatically, uh, you know, because you know, my life was a movie, I gestured and I went, it's all in the suitcase. Like indicating that like I'm running away from home. Obviously, mom, I'm, it, it was very, it was a lot. I was a lot. Um, but <laughs> uh, so that was my story of running away from home. Um, I'm, I'm currently um, in the process of like being back in school to learn about youth development. And so one of the interesting things that we've talked about is like when kids developmentally start to do that process of running away from home. It's a thing that is normal because it's a normal phase of development. So between the ages of like two and four, toddlers, kids start doing that thing where they like run nine feet ahead of you to like, or sprint into the street recklessly and you have to chase them. Um, and they're doing that because toddlers' jobs are to test boundaries. And so when they run away, one, it's very fun to run. And two, they're testing. Do you come after me? Is that street actually dangerous? Uh, you know, what, how fast can I go? What are my limits? Um, and then as kids get a little bit older, usually around 8 and 11, they uh, start to run away from home. It's still a boundary testing thing, but it often comes out of a question of like testing an insecurity or a security boundary. Um, 
you know, my parents are, uh, they're making me angry. And that's, that's part of my security boundary. Like, parents shouldn't make me angry. Parents shouldn't make me upset. Or I've made a mistake, and they're testing the boundary of what happens when I make a mistake. I, I don't trust that the, it's going to be okay. I don't trust that it's going to be good. And it's an interesting thing of, like, it's a boundary testing. And as kids get older and older, it comes more and more out of a question of security. They're testing security-based boundaries. Um, and for older kids and for us as adults, those security boundary questions, they often can look like, what does it mean to be good enough? We sort of circle that question a lot. And probably the days that you felt like maybe running out of your own house or your job or whatever you're doing stems from that feeling of, this is just a bad, this was a day where I just want to go and be away. And we, we don't trust in ourselves that we're secure, or maybe our situations around us. Um, and so I wanted today to sort of look at this question through the lens of one of Jesus's fav- most, most famous parables, um, because I, I think it's a good place to start when we're talking about childlike, is to go to like story time with Jesus. Um, so let's start, because you know, I like to make sure everyone's on the same page, because I work with kids and youth. What is a parable? Well, a parable is a simple story told to illustrate a lesson, and Jesus tells a lot of them. Jesus isn't unique in this. We have parables that we, like our fairy tales and our, our stories that we tell over and over again, those are parables. But uh, Jesus' parables, are they're unique because they hold truths about the kingdom that God and Jesus, the new thing that God is doing. Um, the Bible Project, which is a really cool um, like crowdfunded initiative to promote Bible education, it's done um, by Tim Mackey and John Collins. They have a quote about parables Um, that I really love. Um, It says that Jesus didn't tell parables to make everything clear. Uh, Jesus told parables because he wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. And stories do both of those things, right? You can tell a story about a new way of doing things, and you can get people to imagine. So I am the family ministries director here at Table Life, and I didn't think it was fair if you got out of the childlike series without having to do one deeply childlike thing. So Jake said I should do this like Oprah. If you look under your seats, if you're sitting in the first seat at the ends of the row, you'll find a box of crayons, and if you look inside of your uh, message, uh, booklet bulletin, you'll find a blank comic book panel like so. Um, If you are in a space where you can't access the crayons or there's not going to be enough crayons in your row, you can go to one of the the empty rows or I stashed some extra crayons in Pastor Chris's row. Go ahead and get them out. Don't worry. Um, You'll need to do two childlike things of color and share. So please share the crayons with the people in your row. Um, And don't worry. If if during the service you you need to uh, like ask for a different color, I promise you will not be the noisiest or most distracted audience I speak to this year, so ask for the colors you need. Um, So I'm going to tell you this story, and as we go, I've provided some um, inspirational jumping-off points, some art that I think is fun that you can use to reference, but I really want to invite you to um, let the story sort of speak for itself and wash over you. Jesus would have been telling these stories pre-screens, and so people, when they wanted to, like, have a good time and, and, and be transported, it was on their own imaginations and brains to sort of bring the story to life. So I like to think that in this crowd of people, every, every person who Jesus is talking to 
um, is truly seeing a different version of the story. Maybe they're seeing themselves. Maybe they're seeing other people. You know, we want to think about what it looks like. All right. So we're just going to, we're going to start. Everybody ready? Everyone got their crayons? Everyone's got their coloring? You can use, I like to use the Bible to color on. All right. And remember, kids don't care what their art looks like. So if you're feeling immediate panic that you don't draw well, it's okay. This is for you. I'm not collecting them. Although, if you think yours looks good, I think that would be great. Okay, um, we are in the book of Luke. This is Luke 15, and we're going to kind of move through a story. This is sometimes called the prodigal son, or the son who came home, or the lost son, but we're going to start. Uh, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divvied up his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everyone together, and uh, soon after, oh no, there's a misprint in here. Uh, I'll tell you what happened. He gathered them together. He divided the estate up equally between his two sons, and then the younger son gathered up everything, and he took a trip to a land far away. Uh, and then he wasted his wealth on extravagant living. So that's the beginning part of the story. That's the part that you've probably been told as like, don't be like this kid. This is selfish, right? Um, and I wanted to mention, if you're watching online, please participate in the coloring activity. Go get some crayons or a pen or follow along too. So this is a man had two sons. Um, I, I think that this is like a very good example of a childish person in the Bible, right? The younger son is saying, uh, you know, give me what's mine. And he's actually kind of also saying, like, I wish you were dead because the inheritance is something we usually get, like, after our parents have died. So it's like a true, like, I hate you, Dad, moment. Um, and he's really testing a boundary. He's testing a couple boundaries with this action, right? He, he wants to see what the father will do. And I think it's interesting. There's two parts that sort of stand out to me. Um, I don't know what stands out to you, but I always thought it was interesting that the father divides things equally. So he still makes the decision to treat both of his sons the same, even though one son is, like, doing a very selfish, rude, bad, hurtful thing. Um, and the other thing is that it's like a zero conversation situation. Jesus doesn't say, and then because the father was a good father, he asked his son, well, what are you going to do with the money, or where are you going to go? And it isn't like, well, fine, take your money and get out of here. It's sort of just like a, it happens. The father just sort of does it. And, and that's the information we have about the father now. That, I think, informs some things about the father's character, but we'll, we'll learn more um, about it later. Um, Jesus then moves on with the story. So, when the son had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in the country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from where the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Um, yeah, there's, I think that's a cute picture of that. I tried to use, you know, illustrations we could all get behind. Um, this part of the story, I want to imagine that I would be better than this, but I think if I was hearing the story for the first time in a crowd of other adults, it'd be like, well, that makes sense. Go for him. That's what you deserve when you, like, yell at your dad, take all your money, waste it. You don't invest in your 401k or get a job. You just, like, go out and you do your own thing, you should end up this way. And I want to think I'm better than that. And, and I'm sure some of the people in the crowd were, but some of them also weren't. This seems like a good place for Jesus to end the story. You act childlessly and you will be punished. 
And we don't really need the Father to be a part of it, right? Because this is just how we want the world to work. We want the world to work in a way where we do bad thing, and bad thing happens, black, white, end of story. But when you really start to like think about the story and visualize it, you can picture how it would happen, right? I, I've, I've gone out and I've, uh, you know, I've overdrafted my debit card a couple times and I've learned the hard way that sometimes you don't realize what's happening until it's happened. And then to think about being in a strange land, being hungry, um, and not knowing what to do, not knowing anyone, there's no way to get a message home. There's a good chance he might not have understood the majority of the language being spoken. And he's doing a job that it really, for people listening, it would have articulated how low he was because this is being told in a, in a, a Jewish culture where pigs are considered unclean animals, right? So he's doing a physically dirty job and a spiritually dirty job. He's like low. And I, I wonder what, what the people in the crowd wanted to like ask Jesus at this point. Did they want to say like, well, what, why, how can this story keep going? It's over, it's done, you know? Um, but, but Jesus doesn't, doesn't end, he doesn't end the story there, which I think is, which is a choice. Jesus is showing us something about how the world works. So he's saying, this isn't where the story ends. There's an opportunity for more things to happen. Good things don't just happen to good people. Bad things don't happen to bad people. The story goes on. This is what Jesus says. Um, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? But I'm starving to death. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. This part I love imagining because, so the first came to his senses. He how did that happen? You know, everybody, when they're in a low place, sort of processes it differently, right? So did, 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 did he have a bad day and suddenly that was like the last straw? Was it like a slow thing over time that he started thinking about, like, I, I have to get out of this? Did he have like plan A, plan B, plan C? Is this plan D? Is this plan A? When we're in those situations, I, I do think it's interesting that Sometimes we come to our senses and sometimes we don't. I like to think about that part. The other part I like to think about is that when he, he presents this plan to himself, he has no doubt that bare minimum his father will take him back in some capacity. Again, that tells us something about the father's character, right? He doesn't work his way to plan D and start thinking like, I, I just can't ever, I can never go home. This is it. I can never, ever, ever go home. He knows that in some way he can go back. Which, which I think is, which is, which is interesting. I also really love that he does what we all do, which is he has a pre-rehearsed conversation with himself, right? I've done a lot of phone calls and conversations with my parents or my, my husband, or, you know, you, you pre-rehearse it. You, like, do it a couple times in your head so that you feel ready to go, and then if you're like me, it never goes how you pre-rehearsed it. But he's really in it, you know? Jesus is saying that this guy, he's to the point where he's practicing it. And I like to imagine that as he's walking the long way home, He's probably doing it a couple more times. He's probably, worst case scenario, this conversation to death, right? He keeps thinking about it because parables are short, right? But there's time in between all these things. Okay, so that is also not where the story ends because it could be where it ends. You should go home when you mess up. You should say sorry. You should apologize. That's all true, but Jesus decides to show us what happens next. 
So he goes back. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him. He hugged him and he kissed him. That's a really great two sentences of the Bible, right? So we can all picture how this guy's feeling, right? Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever have that like heavy going back to make right feeling, the feeling of like, I'm not good enough. I have messed up. Something about me is wrong. Something about me is off. And, and we know how then we are so sensitive in those moments where we're received, right? We, um, we want it to go well, but we, we, we reconcile with the fact that like it might not go well. Like you can picture it, really. You can think about like the pit of the stomach feeling that that walk home and then it's made all the worse, in my opinion, by the fact that like the father sees him. Like if it was me, I would want to like get pretty close and not have to have that, you know how like sometimes you open a door for someone and they're too far away and then it's just awkward, right? You want them to be like right, he, I would have wanted it to just like happen and not have to have like even more anticipation by seeing my dad, right? But that's made all the more uh, kind of obsolete because what the father chooses to do is like mind-blowing to me. So my dad's a pastor, right? And he loves to tell this parable when he is doing like um, commitment campfires at camp because it's a, he uses it to invite kids to accept Jesus into their heart or to deepen their relationship. And this is how he would tell this part of the story, okay? So you have to imagine that the father, first off, is not wearing sneakers. He's definitely probably wearing sandals, right? And he's also not wearing pants. He's wearing like biblical era garb, which is floor length robes. And he's wealthy, so it's probably more than one layer. And I don't know if you've ever broken into a full sprint in sandals and a maxi dress, but it's not the most graceful of runs, right? And it would have looked ridiculous. Like it would have looked clumsy. Like he would have been like picking up, like holding on to, and like try. And I like to imagine, like he probably had to like kick his shoes off at a certain point to break into a full run. Like picture it. The father ran to him, not gracefully, not well. There's a reason that like sandals and maxi dresses are not what Olympic athletes wear. It is not running clothing, but that's what the father chooses to do. And in putting the lens of childlike faith over the story, this is a childlike thing that the father does. This is trusting and full-forced and authentic and genuine and love-filled. While he's still a long way off, a long way off, this isn't like a 100-meter dash. This is far. He ran to him. And I think that that is also a part of the story that's meant to show us a detail about the father's character. He doesn't make his son do the walk of shame. He doesn't use it at a time to pre-rehearse his conversation with his son, oh no, what am I going to say? He doesn't give it any thought. He sprints. When was the last time you sprinted? Think about it. When was the last time you full-forced ran? There's like a scene in Friends where Phoebe like runs like this because she, everyone runs really, you know. Pastor Chris runs all the time, but even then, it's a very professional athletic run, right? A full-force run. Probably you were a kid, or if you did it as an adult, you were interacting with a kid. You were playing, you were trying to catch your child, right? Full force running is something we do with children. And then what happens next is the father gets up in his, it's not like an awkward thing. It says it, he hugged him and he kissed him. And you can't kiss somebody far away. He immediately removes the proximity, the distance, the awkwardness between them. And he just like 
tackles him down. And I'm sure he couldn't, like, stop running. You know, like, I'm sure they, like, busted into each other. And it's just a sentence in the story that Jesus tells, but it would have been a really visceral moment, right? I don't, you know, like, we watch videos of people coming home from the army or, you know, we think about times that kids and parents have been away from a long time, and those videos bring up a lot of emotion in us because we know that feeling. It's like, oh my gosh, you're here, you're back. And I love it. I love that Jesus chooses to tell the story this way because that's what they would have been picturing. There probably would have been men about the father's age wearing what the father would have been wearing in that crowd, and they would have been like, look at them, like, you would be running back? That's crazy. It's crazy. It's reckless. Okay, so we pictured that. I hope you drew all of that really detailed in your, in your comic book. We'll move on to the rest of the story because this is also where Jesus could have ended the story. Jesus also could have been like, and then they lived happily ever after. Done. But that's not where Jesus ends the story. He, he keeps going. The son does his pre-rehearsed conversation. And I'm sure it took him a minute to be like, Dad, just listen, listen to me, Dad, listen to me, Dad. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. The father quickly said to him, to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because the son of mine was dead. He's come back to life. So he was lost. He was found. And they began to celebrate. So he doesn't get the whole way through his conversation, right? He doesn't get to say the part about, take me back as one of your servants. He doesn't get to, like, do the thing where he's trying to, like, make amends. The father just cuts him off. It's like, whatever, yeah, 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 you're back. We're going to party. Again, that tells us a lot about the father's character. And I also think that this is a little bit childish. Not childish, childlike, right? Childlike, I don't know if any of you have had the pleasure of walking into a room of preschoolers and announcing something mundane like, guys, did you know today is flag day? Their reaction would be like, flag! They lose their minds. Then they'll be like, what is flag day? <laughs> but it doesn't take much to get a child genuinely in a celebratory mood. That's the thing that we also lose as adults, that just quickness to celebrate. The father doesn't worry about how we're going to fix it or how we're going to make it right or what day-to-day -day life is going to look like now that you're back. The first instinct is we're going to celebrate because you are home and we're, gonna, we're going to acknowledge that. Again, this would be a great place for Jesus to end the story. Because this, this in and of itself tells us a lot about the Father's character, and it provokes our imagination to think about, well, what does this say about God's character, right? It, it says that God runs to us. We'll talk about that a little bit. It says that God is a good Father that loves us and wants us to come home. But that also isn't where Jesus ends the story, because there's an older brother. So Jesus goes on and says, Now, his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house, and he heard music and dancing. He called to one of the servants and asked, what's going on? The servant replied, your brother has arrived, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. And then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him, he answered his father, look, I've served you all these years, and I've never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours returns, after gobbling up into your estate and prostitute, you slaughter the fattened calf for him. Now, this, unfortunately, is the brother that I uh, identify more with, right? That it's not fair. I'm doing everything right. I'm the older sibling in my, in my family, my younger sister. Her name's literally Angel. Um, it's not fair. I, I'm here. I'm doing it. I'm doing my best. I didn't go anywhere. And now we're having a party? Where's my party, Right? And it's, it's interesting because, again, we see an aspect of the father's character, right? This older brother is also being childish. Foot stamp, why not me? I'm not appreciated. I don't feel like you see me. And the father responds in a, in a childlike way. He comes out to him. So both sons, he's meeting them where they are standing, not where he would like them to stand. He goes to where they are in the emotions, emotional space that they're in, and he works it out, and he explains. Um, at the end, he says, uh, son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost. And now he's found. And interestingly, this is where Jesus ends the story. That's the last word we get on the sons and their father. Um, and, and it's just so, it's unsatisfying. It's an unsatisfying place for the story to end. I would, if I was, you know, Jesus' publisher, I would probably say, like, did you think about, like, a real ending, though? Like, does he come in? Does he not come in? Like, but this is where Jesus ends the story, and it goes back to that, that definition of a parable, why Jesus is telling these parables. It's meant to help people to see the world in God's new way, right? And we're now left grappling with this fact of there's one son in a party, and we don't know what's going to happen with that son tomorrow. Does he stay? Does he go? Does it all work out fine? And we have another son who's outside the party. Does he go in? Does he cry when he sees his brother? Do they start father and son's company farming? Like, what, what happens to these people? We don't know. And, and this is where I think that this is a great story to sort of end the childlike faith series because this really answers a question, right, of what does it mean to be good enough? Because we have two sons asking two versions of that question, right? Well, not really asking, but we have them grappling around this, this topic. One son, the younger son, is saying, I am not good enough. Based on my actions, based on my choices, based on the things I've done, based on how things should be, based on what it means to be father and son and a good person, I do not measure up. I do not deserve to be your son anymore. I am not good enough. And then we have another son, the older son, the big brother, saying, asking, am I not good enough? Is what I'm doing not enough for the celebration? Do you not see me working here every day? Do you not get that I could be off doing that or maybe I want to be off doing that, but I've decided to stay here with you? Do you not see me? Am I not good enough? And in both instances, 
it doesn't seem like that's the question that the father is intent on answering. Or that is like the right question, right? Asking, am I good enough, is the wrong question. The better questions to ask are, are what is prompted as we imagine this story. So where are you in relationship to your father, right? Are you far away? Do you need to come home? Are you in the field working and, and choosing to not view things through God's perspective of celebration? Are, are, where are you? That's the better question to ask because what I think the father is doing in this story is establishing well, there is no good enough. You're my sons. It, it, the, you're my sons. And I know that all of us have a kid in our life who just is, they exist, and man, is that enough. We all have a person in our life that they exist, and man, is that enough. And you can want things for them, and you can want for growth, and you can want them to be closer to you or other people. You can want them to make decisions, but but the end of the day, they exist. And that is, that is the good enough part, right? When we're healthy and good and right relationships with each other, that's the point. We want to be here together, even with church. We want to be here together. Um, and so I think that when we've been talking about childlike faith, right? And, and I get the, like, cool job of interacting with literal childlike faith multiple times a week, every week. Um, and we talked about when kids run away, right, they're testing boundaries. At some point in, as our growing up, we go from feeling secure to feeling wholly secure. We never doubt that we are beloved. You, you go from that state of, like, you're a baby and then you're a little toddler, and you just know that when people pick you up, oh, and that they're coming back, and you can cry, and they'll come back for you, or, you know, they'll always be that support system there, and we start to slowly grow up, and we start to lose that sense of security, and we lose it amongst each other, and we lose it within ourselves. Little kids start out thinking they're enough. They don't question, oh, you know, little little Jimmy is walking already, and here I am crawling around, and we'll better work on walking. We do that, but they don't. They're just going to do what they do. They're going to scoot before they crawl. They're going to crawl before they walk. Some kids go from crawling to running. You know, everybody is going to develop at their own pace, and kids don't question it. And then as we grow, we start to do the game of like, well, now I can see that there's more around than just me, and I feel like I'm not good enough. And so what I think the Father's actions do in this story is give us a great foundation for when we want to go and build off of, into childlike faith. We want to move into those, those things that we've been talking about for a few weeks. Of what does it mean to have childlike faith? Because the question isn't, am I good enough, right? The answer is, you're already in God's family. You exist and you're enough. And that doesn't mean that there's not room for growth and that you shouldn't move ahead and that there's not work to be done, but... Thinking about, am I good enough for God? It's wasted energy. God sees us as enough, right? Jesus is telling this story to prompt the listeners to think about doing things in a new way. So he's saying the outsiders, they get to come in. We welcome them back. You insiders, you need to choose to celebrate with me. But you're already enough. I do see you. And so that's, that's sort of where we can go, right, when we think about child life faith. 
you're already in God's family. But you do get to, you're not off the hook. You do still have to think about things, right? You don't need to waste energy thinking, am I good enough? But you do get to start thinking and choosing and working through your decision of are you going to come in to the party? And with the younger son, we see that sometimes that's a beginning choice. The younger son had to begin and make the decision of, I'm going to come home, and it will be hard, but I'm going to do it. But with the older son, for me, you know, there are plenty of people that are in that, that first place. And if you're in that first place, I hope that's a question you're thinking about, of are you going to come home? But for me, I'm more often in the older son spot where I have to make that decision every day. Today, am I going to choose to walk through the world like I'm in God's family, like I'm doing the work of being childlike, like I'm going to do the work of being dependent on what God gives me, of putting trust in him? Am I going to figure out how to say sorry when I've messed up to other people, to God, and, and, and to myself? Am, am I going to play? Am I going to let what other people think of me not affect me and embrace that joyful moments and, and let my imagination soar? Am I going to pause and wonder and have awe about God's creation? Am I going to be a little bit reckless with my love? That's, that's what I think this parable is talking about, right? It's showing us two different versions of getting to come in. But then the story ends, and that's where we get to pick up the parable and finish our own little comic strip of we get to come in, join the party, and then begin living every day like we're a child of God.